Welcome to Recover Strong, a podcast that will transform your recovery from an eating disorder by helping you go from theory to practice to mastery. This is your special time to learn new skills, tools, and get the inspiration you need to recover strong. Let's get started. Good morning, warriors. Time to start your day. I'm your host, Jessica Flint. I'm the founder and CEO of Recovery Warriors, a wisdom sharing platform for all people impacted by an eating disorder. Recovery Warriors provides resources and support to heal your relationship to food, body, mind, and soul. I believe recovery is not only possible, but it is worth it. That is why Recover Strong exists, to help you see and connect to the potential that lies within you to find freedom from an eating disorder. Today, we have a conversation with Dr. Carrie Anderson. She is a licensed professional counselor and has a doctorate in behavioral health. Carrie runs her own practice that specializes in helping others heal from issues with food, body, and trauma. She's also the author of three books that focus on healing from binge eating and has her own personal experience from recovering from binge eating disorder. Carrie is an expert on the science behind binge eating, and that is why I brought her on here to break down exactly what is happening in your brain when you experience a binge and how you can use this knowledge to heal your relationship with food and trauma. And before we dive in, I want to invite you to take our listener survey. The link is in the episode notes below. A big thanks to everyone who has taken it so far. Your feedback is like gold. It is so helpful in helping us curate topics specifically for you. I just want to shout out something I read the other day from a listener. When we asked what you find helpful about listening to this podcast, a listener wrote, quote, you talk about specific obtainable steps that make sense, end quote. I just like that just makes me so happy to hear that that is what you value about listening in because recovery truly is a practice. It takes time to go from theory to practice to mastery. And there are many steps you can take every day. And we absolutely love sharing them with you here on the show, as well as through the daily growth habit, our private library of audio affirmations available for free to recovery warriors insiders. These affirmations are designed to help you soothe and improve your struggles with food, body, and love. Sign up for the Daily Growth Habit for free at recoverywarriors.com slash habit. New affirmations are added twice a month at the new moon and full moon. The latest affirmation track we just dropped is on how to break free of unworthiness and shine your light. The link to the Daily Growth Habit and the listener survey is down in the episode notes below. Alrighty, Warrior, let's get into some practical and obtainable advice in this conversation with Dr. Carrie Anderson. Welcome to the show, Carrie. I'm so glad to have you here to break down the science behind binge eating. Many of our listeners are struggling with this exact topic, and you have a great deal of experience in this area. So thank you for being here today to share your wisdom and insights. Well, thank you for letting me join you. It's exciting to be able to share my passion. I come from a real personal and a professional place when it comes to binge eating. Yeah, yeah. And that's what I love because you can tell the passions there and also the professional experience. You got your doctorate in behavioral health and the, the topic that you chose to use for your dissertation is really relevant. What did you focus on your research when, when you got your doctorate? Okay. I focused on a mindfulness-based treatment for binge eating. 
Uh, and this came out of working over 20 years in the eating disorder recovery field and realizing that this is a population that really wasn't being served. I don't think that traditional eating disorder treatments are really touching on the things that needed to be touched on. And so I was real excited to be able to do research that actually showed evidence that it stopped a binge eating and, um, and in a one-year follow-up actually continued to show uh, binge eating being ceased. Uh, in, a, in this process. So I was uh, thrilled with the results of the, the research. So that's so cool. So you were doing private practice or working in the clinical setting. Then you went to further the knowledge base for all of the field in mindfulness to understand how to effectively treat it. Super cool. Right. Yeah. Now, mindfulness is kind of this buzzword. Like you kind of hear it everywhere, like mindfulness. And can you kind of break it down? Like what is mindfulness? How do we implement it in our lives? And what is the evidence that shows it's effective? Right. So mindfulness, there's two things that's really important to remember with mindfulness, and that is, is to be present in uh, the moment. So alert, aware of your surroundings, especially from a sensory perspective. But the second piece, and many people miss this, is that it's judgment-free. And so it's a judgment-free awareness. And that's very hard to do, especially when it comes to um, the eating behavior, and we're taught to judge our eating behavior. Our eating behavior, our bodies are judged by our culture, by our medical establishment. And so we're having to come at it from this completely opposite paradigm um, when we're looking at mindful through the lens of mindfulness when it comes to our eating, moving, and living. And would you say mindfulness is including all of the senses or is one more powerful than the other when you want to start the practice? I think they're all powerful. Uh, you would think that taste from a mindful eating perspective had to do is the most powerful. But actually, I think that we're so over focused on taste that we're forgetting to get the feedback loops from our bodies. And our body is very wise. If we're able to, to connect with it and listen to it, it's going to tell us a lot about in terms of what we need to do in terms of take care of ourselves. Um, so part of that mindfulness, I think, is really paying attention to all the feedback loops. And for, for instance, a mindful scan of the body might be thinking about what are my thoughts and feelings. Uh, and feelings can be manifested in sensation in the body. Okay, so we're paying attention to those. Hunger for fullness levels. But our physical body also gives us feedback in terms of our GI distress or whether we have a, a fuzzy or a, a sense of clarity in terms of our thought processes, our emotions in terms of how we're feeling that day. All that are feedback loops for mindfulness. Oh, interesting. Can we kind of like insert ourselves in a hypothetical situation and see how one could apply mindfulness? So let's say we're at a, a, a like, it's, it's the holidays. We're at a holiday gathering. There's a lot of food, a big buffet table. Maybe the person's feeling a little bit anxiety because there's a lot of social interactions going on. Where when in, in binge eating is usually what happens. Mm -hmm. What would be a way to work with mindfulness in that situation? Okay, so... The first thing that I would uh, recommend somebody do is before they get into what we call a, a food-sensitive environment, that we, st we do a check-in before we even environ it, because it's food-suggestible, which means that as soon as we step into the environment, all of our things like eye hunger, ear hunger, nose hunger, all this stuff is, is you know, clouding our judgment in terms of our decision because it's, it's working with our reward system of our brain. So... My recommendation is first, you get yourself through breath work, 
through mindfulness techniques to get yourself to a baseline in terms of your nervous system. So you're not coming in already, you know, um, in a heightened sense of, of stress. So you're already calm and you do a body scan and you check in, in in a sense in terms of what is it that you're that you're needing right now and what is your level of hung, uh, hunger or fullness and uh, or self-consciousness or all the things that might be going on. And really, before you get in there, make a decision of how kind of imagine a rehearsal, imagine how you're going to go in and be more present. Because I, I remember when I was in the height of my binge eating disorder, I would go into a party and I was super focused on checking out anything from a social perspective because I felt I had strong self-loathing and body image issues. And so I really was looking at the food in the sense of I was food obsessed. I was, uh, I was thinking about the food the whole time. I may not be eating the food, but I'm obsessed with it. Okay. And some people can understand what I'm talking about. <laughs> so I'm really kind of dissociated from the social event. And so that's not being mindful because you're in your obsession and you actually you've disengaged and almost dissociated from the real event. I mean, I'm sure people have felt that before that you feel like I was kind of floating in this other world, mm-hmm. kind of got disengaged. Is that what you mean by dissociation? That's kind of a clinical term. So for people who don't know, like what, what does it mean to be dissociated? Okay. Well, dissociation can be something that's, that's kind of like completely dissociated in terms of in another realm of, of memory and whatnot, like you might have a flashback or you might, you know, you might be in a state of complete shutdown. I'm talking about a tool as dissociation. Okay. In terms of that w- what we do is that we go into a situation and we kind of check out those things that might be triggers for us. And we put ourselves in this safe space of, is a, of escape, we can re-engage in that process, but it does take some work because what you're doing, you're shifting from a more automated process in your brain, what we call the midbrain or the mammalian brain, and you're going to have to shift through awareness and mindfulness to more of the executive function, which is really the human aspect of the brain. I call it the right brain. Um, and so um, essentially, you have dissociated out of that. But the way that we bring ourselves back, even if you were in a state of dissociation, like a flashback, right, in the, in the truest form of dissociation, maybe in a psychological setting, you use your senses to get yourself back. So part of mindfulness of going into that party would be for me to go in there and I would be focused on all my senses. The first thing I would do is ground myself to everything that I was seeing. I, I might focus on colors. I might go, oh, Jessica's wearing this beautiful blue dress. Or, <laughs> or I might go, oh, you know, look, there's th- that painting has lots of hues of orange and, um, and yellow. Or I would go and I would look around the room and I would try to make eye contact with as, as many piece, people as possible. I would also be listening. Then I would shift and oh, what am I hearing? What are all the, the, the sounds in the room? I might move to smell and taste, but that's going to heighten my sense of uh, the food focus. But in also a sense of touch. So you would want to make sure that, um, you know, you're feeling the feet under your, yourself, the ground. You're, you might, if you sit in a chair, you, you feel your bottom on the chair and the weight that the chair is holding up, these types of things. So the more that you can focus in on these types of sensory things, the more alert, mindful, or awake that you are. Okay, great. I love that. Now, would you say an emotion is also something that you would label or sense, like anxiety? Mm-hmm. Or... Like uncomfortableness. 
Absolutely. And I think that the thing that's most important about understanding your own emotions is to personalize it. And so I help people take it from a cognitive thought, like a emotion as a, as a cognition or a thought, but into a sensation in our body. So for me, anxiety, um, I know that when my throat tightens up or my chest tightens up, my heart starts to beat faster. There's this energy about my chest area that that's anxiety. Or if I feel like this, all of a sudden I got kicked in the stomach or like the breath got taken out of me, then that might be shame for me. But if I can, instead of being afraid of these sensations, because oftentimes if you know panic disorder is really being afraid of your own fear, like what's the sensations in your body. And so then you panic because of the sensations that you're feeling. So what I try to encourage people to do is it's just information. It's part of mindfulness. So you go, oh, okay, that's anxiety. And rather than to be afraid of the anxiety or be afraid of the shame or whatever sensation that you're getting, is that you'd use that information to shift the energy back to baseline. So you use breath work or you use some grounding with your sensory, um, you know, your senses in terms of then focusing more externally, right, on Jessica's blue dress rather than to be focused on the sensation that's going on internally. Wow, this is awesome. And it's really so simple. It's like so, so many words to describe it, but it's, it's so simple, like the act of being able to do this. There's a lot of moving parts. I think that one of the things that we always say about mindfulness practice is that it's a very, very simple concept, but it's very hard to do. Our culture teaches us not to be that way. Okay, we are taught to be human doings. We are not taught to be human beings. We are not to be, we are taught not to trust the feedback loops and the information that our own body is giving us to make our decisions. We are taught to look outside of ourselves because we don't know any better, Jessica, especially when it comes to food in our body. We're being taught from a, a very, very small age that please don't trust yourself because you can't. You're going to get yourself into trouble. You have to look outside of yourself too. And that's, that's the whole premise of advertising is that we have something that, that you don't have or you're not capable of doing. And so you need to get it so that you can do that. But the whole recovery process is bringing ourselves back to self. It's bringing ourselves back to really trusting again. And when I tell somebody, you're going to need to learn to trust your body, if I tell them that in early recovery process, they're going to look at me like I'm crazy. I can't trust my body, right? So do you see how we have to unlearn so much? And we have to create a new relationship with food and a new relationship with our body and trust the feedback loops. And so that's why it's so hard for us because it's an undoing. Oh, I love it. It's an undoing and unlearning. That's great. Yeah, Gary. And, and trust, wow, such a powerful word in when someone who struggles with binge eating because you, know, you feel like you're letting yourself down every single binge event. Every, like the, there's no trust there because the next day is going to be amazing and everything's going to be perfectly fine and the diet's going to start and then I'm going to totally get my life in order and then it happens again. And so I feel like it's always constantly letting yourself down. Right. Everybody feels like it's their fault because I think what happens is, is we're taught that if you just follow the rules, you know, the diets or the rules or whatever, if you just follow those steps, then you'll be fine. But what happens is, is that our bodies and our brains are not set up to follow the rules. And so what happens is that we get set up with this false sense of a prescription and then we feel it's our fault. It's blamed on, you know, a lack of willpower. Mm -hmm. But there are so many, it's very, very complex. And, and, and it's very different than most what we would consider addictive processes. 
Because some people just say, okay, well, an eating disorder is just food addiction. But what happens is food is one of those things that is so primal to our survival that, see, all bets are off because we've got other mechanisms going on that are working to keep us alive. We don't have to. Our, our body is not working to keep us alive through, through drug use or other substances and whatnot. But with food, especially when we start to mess with our food, these feelings of insecurity come up that the body and the brain is picking up. And so now we're finding this fascinating research and th that those, those uh, populations that have the most food insecurity have outrageously high levels of eating pathology or eating disorders. So to me, I've been following the diet industry for a long time. And whether you don't have access to food or whether somebody else, a diet or people in your life are controlling your food, it's still going to trigger that same food insecurity. And so what happens is that your body is doing everything it's, it can uh, with high circulating insulin levels, which causes cravings. So many people that come in and they think that it's their fault and their willpower, power, but yet what's happening is that the very mechanisms in their body are trying to keep them in a survival mode. So they're saying, eat more, eat more, eat more. So it doesn't have anything to do with willpower or they might have systems that make them want more food, but then not shut off that feeling of satiety. So there's so much more going on, Jessica, that has to do with whether or not that they're being good, right, or that they have willpower. Until you, you know, until you start to educate people on what's going on, especially from a mindfulness perspective, you can't, you know, for instance, in a mindfulness perspective, when cravings click in, people will go, oh, that's interesting, right? I'm not going to judge it. I'm not going to say I'm a, I'm a bad person. I have poor willpower. Oh, that's interesting. I have cravings. I wonder what's causing that. Okay. And so then you realize that you may have shifted into what we call the, the Q reward system part of your brain that's causing the craving or your blood sugar might be off. And so it's causing the craving. So you're looking at all these other factors, physical feedback, emotional feedback that might be causing that. And so then you take a non-judgmental stance to that and go, okay, what can I do to take care of myself right now? And so food might not be it. It could be it if it's a blood sugar issue. Yeah, right. Okay. So then you're going to eat, but it also it also might be that you need to calm yourself down, right, and, and use some breath work or use a safe space, a, a safe sensory space, or something to get yourself so that you're in your executive functioning. Then you can access, you know, the reasoning aspect, the value part aspect of your brain, rather than that impulsive or compulsive aspect of your brain. So it's empowerment you know, in the, in the, the biggest sense of uh, the process. I love it. It's, I mean, when I was, I struggled for binge eating for 20 years since the age of six. And, and I find in recovering from binge eating, there's the creativity involved in making the links of the patterns. Would you say so? Like there's kind of this like idea of, oh, wow, I never thought about why that's related to that. And creativity is just connecting things. Well, absolutely. And I think that it really has to do with more about the central nervous system and attention and being able to tap into those parts of your brain. Mm -hmm. um, creativity is part of the um, prefrontal cortex process and, and whatnot. It's not something that's found in the, the middle brain or even the primal brain. And so most people are operating in a stress environment or stress response. The central nervous system is not in a place of what we call coherence. And what I mean by that is we're finding out more and more is that, that 
we are as humans just trying to survive this chronic stress, the chronic baseline stress, most of the time it's not this huge event that is causing a lot of stress for people. Most of the time it's this a baseline stress of traffic of, um, I call it this, the, the drippy faucet, but it's all those things that you walk past every day and look at that says, I, you're not doing enough, Carrie. You've got more to do. Don't you remember? You need to fix that leaky faucet. You know, it's kind of how women feel when they go into their closet. First thing I do with people with their closet is I get, I say, get rid of anything that's not, that you don't feel beautiful in and any, any size of clothes. Cause I used to, when I was in my disorder, I had sizes you know, six through 16 in my closet. <laughs> okay. So the first thing I do is get rid of those things that tell you, you don't even have to really engage in it. It's, it's kind of unconscious. You look at it and, you, and it tells you, okay, you're not doing enough because you can't fit into those clothes. You're not good enough because you can't fit in those clothes. So you get, so we have all these stressors. And so what happens is that we're in this high level state of stress all the time. And we're not taking the time to get back to baseline. So we're not tapping in to the most creative parts of our brain because we're not in a, a baseline in tr terms of a central nervous system rest process. We're not in the parasympathetic nervous system. And now with the idea of stress and then there's anxiety. Now what's the difference between the two? And would you say, do you see a lot of people that come in to, to get treatment for binge eating and emotional eating having either stress or anxiety? I mean, you've mentioned stress already. Well, anxiety is, is stress. Okay. Um, we just label anxiety as fear. Anxiety is kind of fear gone amok. Okay. Actually, 80% of the people who are walking on this planet have anxiety problems. Okay. So, and, and the more that we have had, um, you know, stressful environments and lack of safety in our environments or a history of trauma, which is becoming more and more and more. And I see it a lot, especially in women. Or girls and women that have grown up in larger bodies in this culture, I think just living in a, a, what we would consider an unacceptable body in this culture is traumatic. Mm -hmm. And so what I think is that we've, we've compromised our own central nervous systems through trauma and we've been traumatized. And so um, we live in a state of fear. It's back into that, uh, into that primal instinct of survival. So we're in this fear state. And so, so many people, again, they blame themselves because that they are anxious or what's wrong with me? I have an anxiety problem. But all they're trying to do is they need to learn how to get themselves back into safe spaces, have a strong uh, desire to help people understand how important it is that everybody, everybody have a safe place to land. We need to create sanctuaries for ourselves, sensory sanctuaries, places with safe people that they can come and they can go to, to be able to get themselves so that they're not always having to be ready to flee, not ready to, you know, to defend themselves or to try to protect themselves, that they can completely relax and let themselves. And some people don't even have homes like that. Some people don't have workplaces. If we don't have eye to eye contact with somebody else, a safe person throughout the day, what happens is that we have a very, very difficult time regulating our nervous system because in the, in the whole design, if you will, is that mammals were meant to take care of one another for survival. And so we have been given all these what we call social uh, feedback loops to know to be able to look at a face and see whether it's a safe space or not a safe space. 
well, nobody even looks at each other anymore, Jessica. They're looking at their cell phone, right? Or they look at their texting. So what happens is we're losing this essential innate way to regulate our nervous system. We co-regulate. Now, animals count. So my dog is really good. <laughs> a lifesaver for me, right? So what happens is, is that as we spend time in safe spaces gazing with other mammals that are safe, it regulates our central nervous system. If we don't have that, we have a harder time coming down off of our stress and anxiety. Now, think about those women that, and I, I meet them all the time, that are isolated, right? They become isolated. They become more immobile. They're afraid to go out. And uh, they might be having food delivered. So the cycle continues. They're, not in, they're, they're, they're turning to food, and I did the same thing, for a relationship. Mm-hmm. And the interesting thing about these studies is that food is really a great substitute in regulating the nervous system. And it actually is looked at as something that helps us survive. And so it's a replacement for human content. And the brain reacts in that way to it. So I keep telling people, in the recovery from binge eating disorder, a really important component of it is that we start to develop safe people in our lives and safe spaces in our lives. Because you'll want your, your body is going to want to find something that is going to help them be safe and regulate. And if it's not a person, it's going to be food. This is absolutely fascinating. And it explains so much of my personal experience and ones of, of other women that food, you turn to food because it becomes that safe place. But then it becomes the enemy, right? Because exactly. then it's eating, it's all these problems that you can pin on it. No one loves me because of food because I'm now overweight because mm-hmm. of food. Right. It's so fascinating. And all you're doing is trying to take care of yourself. You're yeah. doing what your body naturally is trying to do. It's trying to survive. Mm-hmm. So it's just a matter of, you know, finally understanding that that's all I've been trying to do. I mean, that is, that really is. All I've been trying to do is to make it. Emotional eating was my lifeboat. And it, it's true for so many people. And so it was my lifeboat in really stormy waters. I will never regret what food did for me at those really tough times in my life. And I think people need to stop hating food and look at, at, look at it as the lifeboat. Yeah, I like that. I like that metaphor for it because it, it's true. It does. It really had a, a purpose and served it. And when you're ready and strong enough and have the personal uh, inner resilience to, to work through these harder emotions without mm-hmm. it, mm-hmm. Then, and then, yeah, it's, it's definitely a really important factor. Yeah, food's not the enemy. No, no, it's not. It's enjoyable, right? Like, do you find that people, once they can stop the, the dieting and the restriction, and because that, as we know, like leads to the binge eating as well. No, but I do want to go to this point about you, you not really understanding that, or kind of the idea of binge eating not being very diagnosable, because I think this is a really important thing that happens with women who struggle with binge eating, is that it is their fault. It's the willpower. But I mean, it's, it is an actual legitimate um you know, like, I would, would you call it a mental issue? Like, well, how would you define binge eating? Well, binge, I mean, emotional eating and binge eating, I think, uh, occur a lot. I think when it, con- when it moves into eating pathology, then it becomes an eating disorder. And let me, t- let me tell you the difference. One is it, it, we use it to manage our stress. A lot of people are called stress eaters and whatnot. What makes it more a mental disorder, and I hate that, but um, yeah, because is, is it's because those 
people that do the behavior that loathe, that go into self-loathing and hate because of the behavior. You know, I was really shocked when I started working with individuals that had binges or overate and whatnot. And I met people when as I interviewed them, they didn't feel bad about it. And I thought they were absolutely, what do you mean you don't feel bad about it? What do you mean you don't hate yourself when you eat that way? See, that's what makes it is because we then place a value on our self-worth and, uh, and who we are based on the behavior that we do with food and the resulting body that may or may not occur as a result of the, the, um, uh, the overeating that, that occurs. So, um, so that's what makes it a disorder. And also the other thing that's interesting is I, I do all my research using a scale called the BES or the binge eating scale. And the reason I love that is because somebody doesn't have to be in a binging episode or a cycle of binging in order for the, for the uh, binge eating disorder diagnosis to pop up. Because what it does is it screens for all the attitudes and the thought processes that drive it. So the idea that the body image issues, the, the diet uh, rules, the, um, all those things that I, you know, we talk about the thin ideal and the diet culture. The more somebody has those driving the behaviors, the more what we call, quote, pathological it is. Some people just eat <laughs> um, and overeat because um, maybe in terms of availability of food or, or, or whatnot. But if it's driven by thoughts and behaviors of self-hate because I can't conform to a certain ideal, then it becomes a more of a problem. So do you see that self-sabotage is often linked to binge eating, like this idea of I can't conform to this ideal, so I'm going to punish myself and try to get as far away from it as possible and then hate myself even more? Right. Um, so the way I try to explain it is sometimes emotional eating on that level is, comes from a place of I'm trying to manage my stress levels, you see that that uh, image of the woman that was just jilted by her boyfriend that's eating um, on TV with a pint of Ben and Jerry's. You know, that's what would be like the poster child for emotional eating, right? Mm -hmm. I'm sad. I'm lonely. I'm upset. I'm gonna I'm gonna eat this away. Well, that's not binge eating disorder. That's maybe the beginnings of it. What happens is is that it moves from this emotional management, a feel good, feel better. And to into this place of what you say, um, self-hate, it comes more, uh, binging behavior comes more out of anger and shame and, and this rebellion from being controlled or having to conform or hating yourself because you can't conform or follow the rules. And it's very on or off. I was either a complete control or I was one hot mess. There was nothing in between. Okay. That's why diets are so desirable, huh? Because it's like this ultimate. I remember I used to get this like state of euphoria when I was going to plan a diet because it was like the ultimate control. Yeah. So you think you're a control. I mean, yeah. it's, this false, it's this false sense of control. Um, but see, that's when it becomes because what happens then is that because of this on and off mentality that comes out of perfectionism, and also it stirs up rebellion and safe self hate and and uh, self destruction. That what happens is that when we're not being perfect, we're bad and we're really bad because what we're doing is that we're not, we're, we're getting it out of our system because we know we're going to have to go back to being good. Okay. Mm -hmm. But we're also punishing ourselves for not being able to be good. And, it, and depending on how long it takes to get yourself out of that. So 
it's much more emotionally charged. It's not just a matter of I'm managing my, you know, anxiety or I'm sad. It comes, it really goes to a completely different level. There is this continuum. Um, and then the more that one person has been in an eating disorder uh, uh, diagnosis, the more it's going to have that we're going to have to untangle those types of things. Because what we do with, with them, other than we teach them emotional regulation, but if we don't address the diet culture and, um, and the thin ideal and that, we're, we're not going to untangle the web that drives it. So we have to look at that. And then if somebody is in this place of self-loathing, we have to pull them back and really bring them back to the basics of what it is, what needs am I not getting met that I need to learn how to get met and take care of myself. And it's a whole relearning of what it is that I need. And so it's kind of bringing them back to their selves. And so once we can do that and teach, uh, there's a real movement for what we call self-compassionate or self-compassion treatment. And um, very, very necessary because what happens is without that, that's with the mindfulness without judgment, okay, being present without judgment. If we can't retrain that dialogue that goes on in our head all the time, we can't escape it. That's, you know, we just have to decide what channel we're going to listen to because we have, everybody has a constant dialogue in their, in their mind. If you can't change that dialogue, to one of a nurturing, self-compassionate, and safe voice, you can find all the safe places in the world to land and around safe people. But if your own mind isn't safe, you're not gonna you're not gonna be in that safe place to land. So that's the retraining there that we have to do too. It's teaching people how to to talk to themselves in a loving and a compassionate way to create a safe inner dialogue that's that's going on in their minds. Yeah. Yeah. Mindfulness and self-compassion really saved my life. And so the mm -hmm. two really, you kind of find that they work together mm -hmm. in concert. Um, now for the mindfulness practice, is there any ones that you recommend someone who can, can, um, you know, start to do implement in their life right now? You, you mentioned the sensory, are there mm -hmm. any other practices or is it really just about tuning into your breath? Uh, so is it possible to be mindful during a binge? And like, why, why is that actually that like mindfulness is so difficult? Mm -hmm when we are wanting to engage. Okay. So this is another empowering uh, thing to understand about our brains. Okay. So the dissociative process is really part of shifting to that automated uh, part of our brain, that the part of our brain that is based on a reward system. And so essentially what happens when we're getting into a binge process is that there has been a cue um, or a number of cues or pairings of cues, people call them triggers too, okay. that, that um, set the brain up for an automatic pro automated process to the reward. And that's when we kind of lose um, our executive function. We lose the process of we're so, there's neurochemicals that are actually being fed to actually pull us in a craving toward that reward. So, Carrie, when you say reward, you're literally saying that the binge is reward for our brain, even though it's something that, you know, on what we can say, I do not want to binge, I do not want to binge, I do not want to binge. That's the last thing I really want to do. But your brain. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, because that's what you're saying. So that's, I mean, that's powerful right there to know that the brain, <laughs> that's the reward. Yeah. Right. Okay. So what happens then is, um, because the reward is what the binge does to you in the, in the moment, in the immediacy. Okay, mm -hmm. it takes me away. 
That's the reward. Escape the distress. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's really not, people think it's the, the food. There is some systemic process that occurs in terms of, of food, the macronutrients that are that, that might light up the, the reward center in the brain in terms of dopamine. But there's so many other rewards that are, that are going on. So I don't want to think that, that that's solely the reward. There's a lot of rewards for, for binging. And so, and understanding that about yourself is important. Your brain has locked on, just like the missile lock, to this idea of what I'm going to get. Okay? And so what happens is everything in your power is going to try to dissociate you into this mindless process or automated process to get the reward. And so that, yes, it's very, very hard to get out of that. When I see people starting to recover as they're able actually to wake up in the middle of that and stop in the middle of a binge and realize what's happening, okay? But what's more important than that is to be able to, what I call kind of manage your brain so that you don't get into this place of vulnerability that you're managing your, I call it your bandwidth. When I talk about that is that we need to have a healthy respect for how much what we call executive function or that the, the resilient mind, not the impulsive part that's being locked into these missile locks, but this executive function or the right brain where we're making value-based decisions. We're making decisions based on what's most important to us and our goals. Most people that I know, the times where they fall off and they, you know, and they, they crash and burn. If we go back and I ask them, what's your self-care look like? How you, how you been taking care of yourself? What do you do on a daily basis to keep yourself in the right space in terms of the right bandwidth in your mind? And then are you expecting too much of yourself after you've had a very long day of giving and giving and giving to others, whether it be your employer or your family? And then you expect to have all this bandwidth, you know, after five o'clock in the evening and you're thinking, and then you go, well, why can't, why can't I make good decisions? Why am I defaulting into the missile lock? Right? And so, uh, so really understanding that so that you can keep your resiliency up and then make plans based on knowing your own vulnerabilities at those times that you just don't have any, you don't ha you don't have anything left, you know? Oh, you give some great metaphors, Carrie. Yeah, it's too like that leaky faucet came to mind again. Like, you know, once you're good, your whole vessel's full or it's like leaked enough to where the stressors, the bandwidth is just at its max. Yeah, it's, it's hard not to act out on a binge. We're helpless because that part of us is trying to keep us alive. We're, we're having to battle that. So if sometimes it feels like you're pushing, you know, this boulder uphill, uh, you are. But I'm telling you that, that my life's work continues to help me. The more I learn about this to help somebody else, the more I apply it to my own recovery and how I, you know, operate. Now, I haven't been one hot mess for a really long time, okay, decades. But I also know that any time that I'm engaging in behaviors that I would consider like, what's going on here? Sometimes, you know, like pull into a, a store, you know, a um, gas station, mini mart or whatever, and there's times in, in, in the last decade, five years, that I pulled in and came out with, I call my, um, my pills, my happy pills, my stress pills. They're, you know, they're good and plenty, right? The pink and white pills. <laughs> Butter donuts. <laughs> right. <laughs> okay. And I'm, uh, I'm not even thinking about it, right? I'm just, you know, eating them, um, and they're in the console. I hide them in the console, right? 
everything. And then my husband will open it up and he goes, oh, you've got some pink and white pills going on here. And so I have to stop myself and go, okay, you're right. But what I have to ask myself is, Carrie, how are you taking care of yourself? inspiration thank you for showing that and being vulnerable to like you know like you can be decades free of the the hot mess binge eating but mm-hmm. we're always learning we're always growing and having events show kind of ex- like like your little inner guidance being like boop, 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 you're off <laughs> right you. yeah so what was your relationship to food like then when it was at its worst when you were hot mess <laughs> what is your relationship to food like now well you know food i think food was well i talk about it being a lifeboat um but it also as as it was a lifeboat, as I got older, it became an enemy. But what it's moved to is food has really become a life force for my life work. You know, food is medicine. Food is, um, you know, it's what keeps me feeling good, gives me clarity of mind, gives me energy. So I look at food now as actually something that is important to me and, and good for me that I need in order to be my best self. And so that takes a real healing to go from something that you're you're misusing or substituting for relationship or substituting um, for safety into something that fuels, you know, fuels your new life. And so I think it's necessary. You know, we know that the research backs that up, that we need to move toward food instead of away from food. We need to move toward trusting food instead of making it the enemy. Yeah. So, so. So that's kind of the way that I, I, I look, the transformation with food. Um, and it, it's just part of recovery. You know, the, the process of getting well took me from life is scary to life is beautiful mm-hmm. in terms of all those things that we miss when we're so focused on, quite frankly, food in our body. True that. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I think of how much time I mean, I needed to go through that process, but I think of how much time that I wasted on, you know, obsessed with, with my, with food and with body. Mm-hmm. And there are some really wonderful things that I missed in my life when I was, you know, in my eating disorder. I remember missing my best friend's wedding because I couldn't fit into anything. I didn't want the people that we went to college with to see me because I had gained so much weight. My shame kept me home. I didn't go, but what did I do all day long? ate and I ate and I ate and I ate and that's not life that's coming from life from a really scary place yeah right instead of really coming and moving to something that could be so much more beautiful yeah I had the same I missed my surrogate families their daughters bought mitzvah so sad right that that connection yeah. that you really want and be there for you you yeah. draw and but thank you for sharing that so much Carrie I've loved yeah talking with you about mindfulness, about uh, the possibilities that can happen when you're able to, to apply it to your life and, and um, yeah, the, the wonders of, of it. So thank you so much for being you're with welcome. us. You're uh, Thanks for giving me so much time. You're amazing and inspirational. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Carrie Anderson. Now let's go over three key takeaways from this conversation to help you recover strong. Key takeaway number one. Notice your feelings in your body. It can be so hard to stop a binge when you're in the moment. Your primal brain has kicked into full gear and it feels like all or nothing. That's why Carrie suggests using the tools of mindfulness and grounding in these moments to help redirect the cycle. When you feel an urge to binge or you're feeling any type of distress or fear, 
take a quick moment to notice where you feel it in your body. So for me, anxiety, I know that when my throat tightens up or my chest tightens up, my heart starts to beat faster. There's this energy about my chest area that that's anxiety. Or if I feel like this, all of a sudden I got kicked in the stomach or like the breath got taken out of me, then that might be shame for me. But if I can, instead of being afraid of these sensations, so what I try to encourage people to do is it's just information. It's part of mindfulness. So you go, oh, okay, that's anxiety. You'd use that information to shift the energy back to baseline. So you use breath work or you use some grounding with your sensory, you know, your senses in terms of then focusing more externally rather than to be focused on the sensation that's going on internally. Noticing where you feel your emotions in your body helps to take you out of your head. Now, following this up with grounding can help you further. Give this a try next time you feel an urge to binge. It throws a wrench in the cycle. Even if you still follow through with the binge, be gentle with yourself and know that you did something important. Change doesn't happen overnight. It's finding small opportunities to disrupt the pattern and then celebrating these micro wins that will result in big changes in the long run. And eventually you will understand that it doesn't have to be all or nothing when it comes to food. So that is key takeaway number one. Notice your feelings in your body. Key takeaway number two. Create your sanctuary. Living with binge eating disorder or facing weight stigma can be an anxiety-inducing and traumatic experience. Carrie helped us understand the importance of creating a sanctuary for yourself to decompress while you heal. I have a strong uh, desire to help people understand how important it is that everybody, everybody have a safe place to land. We need to create sanctuaries for ourselves, sensory sanctuaries, places with safe people that they can come and they can go to so that they're not always having to be ready to flee, to defend themselves or to try to protect themselves, that they can completely relax because you'll want, your, your body is going to want to find something that is going to help them be safe and regulate. And if it's not a person, it's going to be food. So how do you create your sanctuary? It starts with you. You can be with the safest people in the safest environment in the world, but it won't mean much if it's not safe in your own mind and your own heart first and foremost. Create your own inner sanctuary by changing your self-talk to a nurturing, self-compassionate, and safe voice. From there, you can work on creating safety around you. Maybe it's in the form of setting boundaries or by making big changes in your home or work environment. Carrie also told us about the importance of touch and eye contact in regulating our brains and emotions, whether that's with a person or a pet. So maybe your sanctuary is snuggling up with a sweet furry friend. Remember that above all, you can create safety for yourself in your own mind and your own heart. Give yourself a soft place to land with self-compassion and self-kindness. That was key takeaway number two, create your sanctuary. Finally, key takeaway number three, food is not the enemy. Really, it's not. Food is not the problem. You are not the problem. Food is simply nourishment and energy for our bodies. It's easy to lose sight of that in the midst of diet culture and living with an eating disorder, but there is nothing wrong with eating food, including foods you like and enjoy. Carrie explained how she realized that food is not the enemy. Food has really become a life force for my life work. You know, food is medicine. Food is 
you know, it's what keeps me feeling good, gives me clarity of mind, gives me energy. So I look at food now is actually something that is important to me and, and good for me that I need in order to be my best self. And so that takes a real healing to go from something that you're, use, you're misusing or substituting for relationship or substituting um, for safety into something that fuels, fuels your new life. And so I think it's necessary. You know, we know that the research backs that up, that we need to move toward food instead of away from food. We need to move toward trusting food instead of making it the enemy. Move towards trusting food and know that food is your fuel for building a better life, a life of peace, hope, and abundance. Food is not the enemy. So these are our three key takeaways from this conversation with Dr. Carrie Anderson. Well, my warrior friend, thank you for having the discipline to listen in. If you found this episode helpful and know somebody in recovery who could benefit from its inspiring message, please share this show with them. It would mean the world to us at Recovery Warriors if we can get our cause out to more people struggling with an eating disorder. So if what you heard today was helpful, share the show with another warrior or anyone on your treatment team. You can do this directly from your podcast player or send them over to recoverywarriors.com. We have a goldmine of free resources there for all stages of recovery. And until the next episode, may compassion light the path you are on and courage keep you on it. You totally got this, warrior. Warrior.